Father, we thank you that we can come to you. Uh, Thank you that in uh, a study of your word, we're not left alone to try and figure it all out to our own knowledge and understanding that we have the helper of the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us great help today as we study the Bible. We, We need more than just a word from a man. We need a word from Almighty God. And so we look to your word. Lord, we know we're not the only church in this community, and we do pray you'd pour your blessing out on the churches of Jesus Christ. This morning specifically, I want to lift up Pastor Jeremiah. Thank you for his encouragement to me. Thank you for the ways we've been able to partner with him individually, but also with Cross Point Coast as a church family. Lord, I pray that would only continue and increase in the days that lie ahead. And may you glorify your name um, in the hearts and the lives of those who are part of that family. And may you spread their influence throughout this community and do the same for us as we gather around your word and as we get ready to go into our world. Lord, we love you and praise you and ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Revelation chapter eight? We're continuing the study on the revelation of Jesus Christ and I just wanna remind you uh, sort of the, the approach that God has led me to take in this study. We're going to really just be focusing on the, the main or the large truths that are developed throughout the rest of the book of the Revelation. So that means we're not, gonna, we're not gonna spend a great deal of time looking at all the details and trying to figure out everything. Some of you have been a part of studies like that and I wanna let you know I, I'm not against studying this book in greater detail, but I don't feel led to do that during our times of gathering and there are a couple of reasons for that. First, we're limited on the amount of time that we have. Um, I know some of you feel like maybe I take too much time already. You can only imagine if I went into more detail how long you might be here and some of you are already hungry and thinking of lunch and I've just now begun. So we have a limited amount of time and so that means we have a limited amount of things that we can focus on in any given week. And really the, the, the more uh, pressing issue for me is the fact that as you start to look at this book that's filled with a lot of symbolism and, and imagery and pictures and difficult things to interpret and understand, the more you go into the details of trying to figure everything out, the more you open the door to speculation of people who are, who are teaching or thinking or encountering the word of God in light of here's how this could take place or here's what this might mean. And the, the problem with speculation uh, is there are multiple problems with it, but the Bible warns us in 1 Timothy chapter one that false teachers are marked by speculation. Uh, and we don't wanna be false teachers, right? We don't wanna be people who open ourselves up to false doctrine. And so we don't want to go into all of the details of here's how this could take place or here's what this might mean. We wanna spend our time focusing on what's clear and what's plain about the word of God in Revelation. And so you're gonna feel over the next few weeks of our study of Revelation that we'll be speeding up a little bit because we're covering the, the bigger picture, the main points in this book. So for instance, this morning, we're gonna be looking at the main truths out of chapters eight through 11. So we're gonna, we're gonna travel through four chapters of this book. I know last week we went through three verses, I think, in about 45 minutes. So you can do the math on that. Um, we'll just continue tonight uh, at nine. But anyhow, we'll, we'll, we'll continue moving forward. And before we look at these four chapters, if you're visiting with us this morning, you haven't been here the whole time, I wanna give you just like that 30-second synopsis of what we've seen to this point. The book of the Revelation is written by one 
one of Jesus' disciples named John. John was placed in exile because he refused to stop teaching that Jesus Christ is the only Lord and God of every man, woman, and child. While he was in exile, Jesus visited John there, and he gives to John this vision. And Jesus says it's a vision of things that must take place. So, So this is a vision concerning things, events that have to happen, that must take place before the coming of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom on this earth. And and as we've gone through the book to this point, we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter six and seven that one of the big themes that we see is that before the return of Jesus Christ, the world as we know it sort of starts to become undone. The coming of Jesus is surrounded by the coming of his wrath. And two weeks ago, we looked at chapter six and saw that John had a vision of this scroll that had been in the hand of of God. And and God gave that to his son, Jesus, and Jesus began to open that scroll. And the scroll was sealed with seven seals. And every time Jesus opened one of those seals, events took place on the earth. And and events took place in heaven that glorified God in heaven and also brought wrath to man on earth. And and so we're going to see in this morning's message that that theme of the wrath of God on earth and the glory of God in heaven continues in these next couple chapters. So we're gonna cruise through chapters eight and nine pretty quickly, and then we're gonna camp a little bit longer in chapters 10 and 11. So let's look at the next series of seven, not seven churches or seven scroll, seven seals that we've already seen so far. We're gonna look this morning at seven trumpets that are seen here and heard in Revelation chapter eight. So let's begin Revelation chapter eight, verse six. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. That's the name of a plant that's really bitter. And a third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Verse 13, then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. You can stop right there. So, so here I want you to see just really quickly, this is the continuation I was talking about of what we had seen from the seven seals. Before the return of Jesus, God's wrath is poured out on the earth in a way that literally is going to tear this universe apart. And the first trumpet here in chapter eight describes a third of the earth, trees and green grass being destroyed by hail and by fire. And then we see a third of the seas are destroyed by what looks like maybe a meteor or an asteroid flaming down and crashing into the sea. And the, the third of, the, uh, of the, the, the sea life is destroyed a third of the ships and then a third of the earth's water supply is made bitter.
bitter or it becomes undrinkable. And then something occurs where the, 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 the heavens are blocked during a third of the day and, and during a third of the night so that the sunlight of the sun doesn't reach the earth for a third of the day and the moon doesn't shine for a third of the night. And listen, you can read the Left Behind series if you want to try and get some theories on how that could actually happen. But what I want to point out to you this morning is that there's something that's really similar in this series of seven trumpets compared to the seven seals. And then there's something that's different, something that stands out. The thing that is similar is that in the seven seals and in these seven trumpets, we see that God's wrath is coming down on earth. I already mentioned that. And so that's similar. That's something that is continuing here. God's wrath is coming down on this earth. Here's what's different though. In the seven seals, the number that's given for destruction or or for the, the result on the earth is that a fourth of the earth's population seems to receive the worst of the, discrep- the, the, the destruction of God, the, the wrath of God. So a fourth is, is, is impacted deeply and greatly in the seven seals. When we get here, what number jumps out to you over and over again in the seven trumpets? A third, right, so we have a fourth in the seals. Here we have a third. It seems that a third of the earth receives the worst of the worst destruction of these trumpets. So you have a fourth of the earth's population, then you have a third, and then you get all the way up until the end of the book in chapter 20 when every man, woman, child, anyone who's ever lived stands before the great white throne judgment. And here's what I want you to see is that this is establishing a trajectory in this book of worsening judgment on this earth. A trajectory that starts with a quarter of the earth's population, goes to a third of the earth's population, goes to the point that every man, woman, and child has ever lived will stand before Almighty God. And here's what I just want you to see this quickly. The world is moving toward ultimate judgment. That's what we're reminded of here. It's a reality that we have to face. This world is moving toward ultimate judgment. The seven seals contain judgment, but they're not the ultimate judgment. The seven trumpets contain judgment that is even more intense, but even they are not the ultimate judgment. Ultimate judgment is coming when the ultimate judge returns whose name is Jesus. And here's what we need to to face this morning. Ultimate judgment isn't just coming to this earth, it's coming to people. To people, that's sobering, that's heavy. Every person will stand before the ultimate judge. The intensity of God's judgment is increasing here. The first four judgments are set apart from the last three. The last three are actually called woe, woe, woe upon the earth. These are woes that afflict people. People are affected by this. Look at chapter nine. And we're gonna begin reading in verse one. Let's pick up in chapter nine, verse one. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. 
They, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, the two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who'd been prepared for the hour, the day, and the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, 200 million. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails for their tails are like the serpents with heads by means of them they wound. You can stop right there. You wanna talk about speculation for a second? All right, speculation is all over the place. This passage is ripe for speculation. I mean, what are these locusts? How big does a locust have to be to have teeth like a lion, right? Like how in the world is this going to take place? What's it mean that they look like a horse? Do they look like a horse or do they look like a a, a locust? Do they have armor? Are they real locusts? Are they something else? You can speculate forever for decades about what these creatures actually are and how this plague is really going to take place. Some people say these are real locusts that are created by God to actually be more heinous and more destructive than any creatures ever seen on this earth. Some say that they're helicopters. It was a big deal, Black Hawk helicopters. And John didn't know how to describe a helicopter because he'd never seen a helicopter. So he just described it the way he saw it. Some say these are demonic beings because they are ruled by a king from the bottomless pit who's an angel from the bottomless pit, a demon named Apollyon. That name means destroyer. What's the army? We didn't even get to the the sixth trumpet. What about that army of 200 million troops? 200 million troops led out into battle on horses that have a power to kill a third of mankind. I mean, what in the world is going on? How's that going to happen? There's so much to speculate, but there is plenty here you don't have to guess about. You don't have to speculate about. For instance, no matter what these locusts are, you can know this. They are terrifying and terrible and bring a torment that is worse than physical death. So much so that the people who experience this pain and this terrorization 
by these creatures cry out for death and death doesn't come. They wish they could die because they think the only way to escape this terrible torment is death itself. And in the midst of all the questions about how this could take place, it's certain this is a horrific judgment coming upon the earth. And in all of our questioning, don't miss what's clear here. Look at verses 20 and 21. Notice this. Don't let the speculation keep you from seeing this. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or talk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Do you see that? These chapters don't just show us that this world is moving toward ultimate judgment. They show us that people deserve ultimate judgment. Did you see that? The world as we know it is crumbling all around people. They are dying by the droves. A third of the population is wiped out. People are suffering so much they just want to die. And in the middle of all of that, people still refuse to repent. They'd rather have their sin than a savior named Jesus They continue worshiping false gods who are actually demonic beings who who obviously have no power to save them and still they won't turn from their false worship. They're stubborn and hard-hearted and sinful to the core. And listen, this isn't just something that is far off on the horizon. This is the world in which we live This is at play in our world today. People continue to worship false gods of money and power and entertainment and self-promotion even though those false gods have been proven not to have power to save anyone from their personal torment or destruction. This week I read a couple of articles. Um, They were disconnected from one another. I had just happened to read both of them. Both of them were about uh, high-level athletes in our culture today. Both of these men have achieved amazing success in their respective sport. They, 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 they sounded eerily familiar as they're rich and they're famous and they're powerful and they're influential. Both of these men engaged in a, an extravagant lifestyle. Both were deeply successful and deeply unsatisfied. Deeply self-destructive. Both are lost And as I read these articles, I couldn't help but think about them as I read this passage of scripture. The false gods of money and fame and sex and power and external success are obviously weak and useless to satisfy these men and to help these men and deliver them from their personal demons, but still they continue in their own destruction. This is the world we live in and chapter nine shows us that the hearts of men are hard and filled with sin, but it's not all we should see. See something else here. This isn't a picture just of men's sin and God's wrath. It's a picture of God's grace. 
See God's grace here, church. God is gracious first to protect his people from his wrath. Look back at chapter nine, verse four. These locusts are told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Do you see that there? The order is given, you can harm, you can harm the people of this earth, but do not touch the people who are sealed by God. We talked about this over the last few weeks. The people who are sealed by the power of God are those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their savior. And it's not that these people weren't sinners too. It's not that these people weren't hard-hearted too. It's that God has done a gracious work to expose their sin and to deal with it in another way. Instead of pouring out his wrath on those people who are trusting in Jesus. Revelation chapter one verse five says that Jesus has freed us from our sin by his blood. When we trust in Jesus Christ, God punishes our sin. He just doesn't punish us. He placed our sin on Jesus Christ at the cross and God's wrath poured on Jesus and he crushed Jesus Christ for our sin and we are forgiven. We are set free from the bondage by the grace of God when we turn to Jesus Christ and we trust him. And if if you're completely trusting in Jesus, I want you to hear me on this. If you're completely trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to forgive you of your sin, to save you from its power, I want you to know this. You will never, ever, ever have to endure the wrath of God. Ever, ever, ever. Because God is gracious. You hear that? God is gracious to all who will turn to Jesus and call out to Jesus. We hear this story that should strike us in this imagery of how God's wrath will fall on people and we should be smitten with, with humble, grateful hearts at the grace of God in Jesus. He is gracious because he protects his people from his wrath and he's also gracious in another way. When you read when you read through those six, the fifth and sixth trumpets, the people who survived that coming judgment didn't repent. You need to see what's, repl- what's implied there. Here's what's implied there. There was a chance to repent. God is gracious because he gives people a chance to repent from their sin. Now we read these people here don't take that opportunity, but we shouldn't forget that dynamic. God gives people a chance to repent of their sin. And as I've been studying this book, I want you to know I've been so blown away by this dynamic. God's wrath is coming and it's as though I can see it traveling toward us to this earth. It will come in fullness to every person who's ever who's ever lived and has not turned to Jesus Christ. God's wrath is coming, but listen to me, listen to me me it hasn't come yet God is gracious I wish all of you could stand face to face with me and I would talk to each of you as I'm talking to you now and say God's wrath is coming but it hasn't come yet there's time to repent it's possible that everyone in this room is fully completely trusting in Jesus as repentant of their sin and trusting in Christ as their savior. But I find it hard to believe in a room this big with this many people present that there's not one or two 
or three people or more who have yet to turn to Jesus Christ completely, who have yet to call on the name of Jesus. And, and if I could beg you, and that would be enough, I would beg you and say, there is a way to escape the judgment of God, and that way is Jesus and Jesus alone. Would you call on Jesus today? Would you call on Jesus today? He will save you from the wrath of God. He will protect you from coming judgment. Would you call on Jesus today? Would you repent of your sin? Are you, are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Judgment is coming. Christ Jesus will save you from the very wrath of Almighty God if you will turn to him in faith. Call on Jesus today. Call on Jesus. God is gracious to protect his people and to give them, those who have yet to trust in Christ, a chance to repent. And that leads me to chapters 10 and 11. Let's look at chapters 10 and 11. There are two main things I wanna show you from these chapters They're connected to what we've been seeing here. Let's look at chapter 10 for a moment. Verse one, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I'd heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go, take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and I, I told him to give me the little scroll and he said to me, take and eat it. I will make, it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I'd eaten it in my stomach, it was made bitter and I was told you must again prophesy. You must again prophesy about men many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Stop right there. There are a series of sevens and we've seen this all throughout and I'm not gonna spend much time in chapter 10. You see seven churches, you see seven seals on the scroll, you see these seven trumpets. Later on we'll see seven bowls. Here we have a series of seven thunders but God says that John is to seal that up and not write that down and that's just a reminder, not for us to try and speculate about what it might be but to remember that all of the events around the end of this world are not given to us. We have to become satisfied knowing God knows, even if we don't. We we can't figure it all out, and God doesn't intend for us to know it all out. And this is a, a clue, a reminder of that in this passage of Scripture. But in chapter 10, even though we don't see what is, is, is given to us through these seven thunders, we do see this, that there's a commissioning given to John. And it's almost identical to the commissioning that was given to an Old Testament prophet named Ezekiel. When Ezekiel was told by God that he had to proclaim his message to his people and to the nations, God gave this little 
scroll to, I, to Ezekiel. And, and on the scroll was written this, this message of mourning and despair and coming judgment. And, and Ezekiel had to eat that scroll. I know it's making some of you hungry. I haven't had a good scroll in a while, right? It's making you, so he has to eat this scroll. And the imagery is this, that he has to internalize the message of God so that he can give it out in authenticity. And when he eats it, it's sweet in his mouth, but it's bitter in his stomach. And John has the same experience. He takes this message and he eats it and he says, it's sweet in my mouth. This is sweet. These are the words of Jesus himself. The message is sweet in my mouth, but it turns bitter in my stomach because it's a message of woe. It makes me sick to my stomach. And I've got to tell you that even as I've been studying for this and I've, I've, I sort of joked about it somewhat a little bit, but it's not that funny, which is apparently why you guys don't laugh when I tell you the joke. But it's been so heavy. And I know that the book of Revelation is not the... the thing that makes us feel like it's the feel-good story. It's, it's not the one where we come like, oh man, I saw the sign said the, the message is on, on wrath, woe, and the faithful witnesses. Man, that sounds fun. I know we don't feel that way. But the truth is, our stomach should be turned somewhat. Uh, there's something in us that should be turning as we hear that there is a message of woe that is coming to everyone on this earth who's not in Christ. John is given this commission that with a message that is hard for the nations and the people to hear, you should go and be my witness. That's what he's doing. He's recommissioning John. Go and tell them, prophesy, proclaim, say it out loud. That's what he's saying. John, say this out loud. It's hard to say. It's hard to think about, but it's true and it's coming. That's what he says to John. And that's the perfect setup to chapter 11. Look at chapter 11, verse one. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told, rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations and they'll trample the holy city for 42 months or three and a half years. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1260 days or 42 months or three and a half years and they'll be clothed in sackcloth. These, the witnesses, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. We'll talk about that beast rising from the pit later on. And their bodies will will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. The earth celebrates at their death. Verse 11, but after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third is soon to come. You want to talk about more speculation? Here you go. Who are these guys? 
right? Who are these two witnesses? Uh, we've heard it all our lives if we've grown up in church. Are, are they Moses and Elijah? Are they Enoch and Elijah? Are they Enoch and Moses? Are they some combination of somebody else? Some interpretations say that these two witnesses are actually representatives of the church. Uh, the reason they say that is because verse four says these two are the olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the throne of God. And so there are those who say this is a, a representation of, the, of the, the church on the earth. Earlier in Revelation, lampstands are said to be the churches of Jesus Christ. So I can understand why people would think that these witnesses represent the church of Jesus. This is also very much parallel to a passage of scripture in Zechariah chapter four. You don't need to turn there. You can write that down if you want to look at it. But in that vision, there's an image of the throne of God and there's a lampstand by the throne of God and surrounding the lampstands are these two olive trees beside it. And in that passage of scripture, the emphasis is on the witness of the anointed ones who are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the passage of scripture that we get, not by my, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's Zechariah chapter four. The emphasis is on the anointed message proclaimed through witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is a great chance to remember, let's not get bogged down in the weeds here. Don't get bent out of shape over the details. And think about it this way, whether this is the church represented in these two men, or whether this is Enoch and Moses and Elijah. You guys can talk about that over lunch. I'm sure you're gonna have a great time uh, with that. But listen to this, think about it. this. If these two witnesses represent the church, then they remind us that we're called to demonstrate the truth of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit as we declare the truth of the gospel to the people of this earth in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? If, if these two witnesses aren't, representing the church and they're Enoch and Moses or Moses and Elijah or Enoch and Elijah or some other guys, then they at least remind us that we are also called to demonstrate the truth of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit as we declare the gospel of, the, of Jesus Christ to the people of this earth in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see that? Some of you guys didn't even follow me, you're out to lunch. I repeated two phrases that were identical there. This is a reminder to us as the church, as the people, as the anointed witnesses on earth at this point in time and in history. We're called to demonstrate the power of the gospel of Jesus by the way we live in the power of the Holy Spirit and declare the gospel of Jesus to the people around us as we live in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we see here. Here's what we learn. God, listen, this is the big point here. God will proclaim the gospel through witnesses who live in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening here. However you wanna fight about the details, that's what's happening here at the end of the world and that's what happened at the beginning of the age of the church when Jesus says to his followers in Acts 1-8, listen, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my what? My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and into the ends of the earth and here we stand at the end of the earth and you wanna know what God's plan is to reach 36,000 people on Merritt Island with the gospel of Jesus Jesus, you want to know what his plan is? You. You. I'll get there. Don't jump the gun on me on that. Yeah. His plan, his plan is to declare the gospel of Jesus to people who are far from God 
but close to us as we live in the power of the Holy Spirit and we say the gospel as we live the gospel in our lives. Do you realize you're getting ready to walk out into a community that is filled with people, tens of thousands of people, and we just read those people will all have to stand before Almighty God. Every person you see today, every person you see today has to stand before Almighty God. And there is only one way of escape, and his name is Jesus. And God has a plan to proclaim the message of Jesus to every man, woman, and child in this community. And you are the plan of God. That he would fill you with the power of himself and the Holy Spirit and you would live as a demonstration of the gospel's power by what you do and you would say the gospel's truth by what you, you declare, by what you say. And so I wanna ask you, when I say that, who, who is God calling you to tell about Jesus? Who, who has God placed in your life so that you can not only live out the truth of the gospel, but you can tell the truth of the gospel. Who are you praying for? Who when you hear that we will all stand before God and you know for yourself I am saved by Jesus, I will not endure his wrath, I celebrate that, but who's that next person you should think of who is not saved, who will endure the wrath of God and is not trusting in Jesus today and God's calling you to tell them about Jesus? Who's that person? Around here we have a question that we ask routinely. The question is, who's your five? Who are those people that you can point to in your life that are near to you and far from God? God's placed them in your life and he's calling you to live intentionally for them. Who are you praying for? Who are you relating to for the sake of the gospel? You are the plan of God to proclaim the gospel to the people of this community. And do you wanna know when the people of this community will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? When we tell them. When we tell them when we're no longer satisfied that we're safe and we'll be okay and we're no longer condemned. We're not just satisfied with that for ourselves, that we want it for them enough to go and tell them. And the last thing I wanna show you here is the end of chapter 11. Let's look at this. So not only will God proclaim his gospel through people who live in the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 15 of chapter 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. It has become now and he shall reign forever and ever. And 24 elders who sit around or sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying we give thanks to you Lord God Almighty who is and who was for you have taken. Now notice that phrase. Normally we see that to, to this point before this point in the revelation of who is and was and who is to come, right? Now it's no longer who is to come because he has come. Who is and who was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, for those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. See that? 
The kingdom has come. Jesus is reigning. All is glorious and triumphant. Verse 15 says the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our God. This is a beautiful picture of the end of all things when men, women, children stand around the throne of God and they declare the glory of our great king whose name is Jesus. But I want you to see something we skipped over on purpose earlier. Look back at chapter eight, verse two. Look back at chapter eight, verse two. All of these events of the trumpets have happened. The glorious king has ruled. He's, he's, he's taken his reign over the kingdoms of this earth. Now, now look at chapter eight, verse two. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers. Look at this phrase. With the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. Do you see what happens here? Everything we just read that took place culminating into the coming of Christ's kingdom, everything we see happening on this earth and in heaven here at the end of this age happens in response to the prayers of God's people. See that? This started with people praying. The prayers of God's people came before his throne. Listen to me. God has ordained that all the events that lead to the completion of his plan for the nations, for his plan for all of human history, will occur in response to the prayers of his people. God will proclaim the gospel through people who live in the power of the Holy Spirit and God will present his kingdom to this earth through the prayers of his people. He will present the kingdom. Church, our prayers matter. Do you know that? Heaven moves and hell trembles at the prayers of God's people. The events that accompany the coming of the king occur in connection to the prayers of God's people. So what should we do? Pray. Should we talk about praying and not pray? No. I just, want to, I just want to highlight something. Next Thursday, not this coming Thursday, next Thursday, May 5th, we will host a community-wide national day of prayer where we will gather with brothers and sisters from all different denominations, all different churches in this room, and we will pray for the kingdom of God to come on this earth, for the hearts of people to embrace Jesus as king. And it'll be a great expression to see how many of the people of God in this community believe that our prayers matter. I want to encourage you, if you are at all able, make plans to attend that prayer gathering as we come together. Because if we really believe that powerful movements of God on this earth happen in connection to the prayers of his people, then we should be people who do more than talk about praying, right? We should be people who pray. We should be people who pray. So there's two big things. God will proclaim the gospel through people who live in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's you. And God will present his kingdom in response to the prayers of his people should drive us into a couple of things. It should drive us into prayer. So this morning we're gonna pray. Before we leave, we're gonna pray. We're gonna ask God to do a work in our community that would open the hearts of people to embrace Christ as king. Can you do that? Pray that God would do a work that would open the hearts of people who are hard-hearted and unrepentant to embrace Christ as king. And would you pray that God would give you boldness to proclaim the gospel to them. 
that God would give you boldness to proclaim the gospel to them. I know some of you would like to pray with a pastor during this time of prayer, so I'm gonna ask our pastors to go ahead and come down front. As our pastors come down front, some of you may wanna talk with us about your personal relationship with Jesus. You'd like to talk about how you can know that you are saved from the penalty of your sin and the wrath of God and that no condemnation will ever come to you as you trust in Jesus. If you're not completely certain that you are born again and you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, I'm gonna ask you, would you come and speak to one of our pastors, to one of us? We'd love to show you even more from the scriptures and pray with you about how you can know Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior. Some of you may wanna pray with us about dynamics that are happening in your family or in your job or in your body, your health. We would love to pray with you. But during this time of prayer, if you don't feel led to come pray with a pastor, I wanna encourage you to pray uh, as families, as couples, as friends, maybe break up into groups of three, four, or five and pray that God's kingdom would come, that people's hearts would be open to embrace Jesus as king and that we as the church would go, that the kingdom of God would come and that we as a church would go to boldly proclaim the gospel to them. If you don't feel comfortable breaking up into group and praying, that's okay. You can pray quietly where you are. But church, let's be a church that believes the Bible and obeys it and doesn't just talk that prayer matters. We actually pray, okay? So let's spend these next moments in prayer with one another. And you can pray with a pastor if you feel that.